Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm Jane Hong. And I'm Tim Sang. And we're your hosts. This season, we're focusing on the history of Asian American Christianity and the ways it can help us understand our present moment. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Centering Podcast. My name is Tim Sang. Buckle up! My co-host Jane Hong and I will be your drivers as we travel the highways and byways of Asian American Christian history. So many hidden secrets for us to explore. Now, I'm a historian of Christianity, a pastor, a dad of two adult sons, a husband. We celebrated our 35th anniversary last year. And I'm also on staff with the Graduate and Faculty Ministries of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. Jane? Hi there. So I'm Jane Hong. Um, and I'm an associate professor of history. I specialize in U.S. immigration and foreign policy. Importantly, I am not a pastor, but I am an academic who's interested um, in Asian American Christian history, writing a book on it. I'll talk more about that at some point, I'm sure. I'm the child of Korean immigrants and the newish mom of a daughter. And my hope is you will not hear her in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so Grace Gao is professor of ethics and director of the Center for Sexuality, Gender, and Religion at Claremont School of Theology. First, just wanted to kind of set the stage and intro our topic for today. So there's been a big question in the air, again, these past few months since May, since George Floyd was killed by uh, Derek Chauvin of the Minneapolis Police Department. Black Lives Matter, this is not a new movement. This is not something that just happened in 2019 or 2020. It goes back many years. And the struggle for racial justice, I mean, is a very long-standing historical struggle. The question that has been, I think, on the minds of many Asian American believers is, do Asian Americans have a place um, in these racial justice movements? And if so, what is their place? We often think about how racial justice is framed in America and in American history, it's often the conflicts are framed as black and white. Um, and there's good reason for that. You know, obviously we know the historical legacies of slavery, for example. And when we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, this is a movement that really arose because black lives were being threatened by law enforcement and just by systemic racism in American society. But I think when Asian Americans think about where they fit, it's really not clear sometimes. And I think some of the conversations that I saw and that kind of set the stage for our conversation today are conversations around things like um, Asian American complicity. Um, I think I saw a number of articles written by largely East Asian Americans talking about kind of the extent to which Asian Americans participate in anti-Blackness. And I think some of these pieces were centered around the figure of Tu Tao, who was the police officer mm -hmm. also in the photographs, right, who was standing guard and preventing bystanders from intervening when Derek Chauvin was in the process of killing um, George Floyd. And complicating matters further, Derek Chauvin was married, is married, or was or is, I'm not sure, um, married to a Hmong American woman who has two Hmong American children from a previous marriage. So it raised a lot of questions about Asian Americans' relationship to white supremacy, but also gendered power relations and gendered power dynamics as well. Um, and I saw Hmong American writers, including some Hmong American people of faith, um, push back on some of these conversations about Asian American complicity um, and try to complicate the differences within Asian America. Mm -hmm. So one piece I read framed it this way. The question I think the writer asked was, what does a Minneapolis-born child of Hmong refugees who grew up in 
neighborhoods alongside Black communities, what do they have in common with a fourth-generation Chinese, Japanese-American living in um, affluent California suburbs, right? So, or to use my examples, like Northern New Jersey, you know, I mean, thinking about these differences within Asian America. I also thought about this recently when I heard Kasha Vogue, among American activists with Freedom Inc. in Wisconsin, talking about the very different histories of activism, different kind of relationships Hmong Americans and Black Americans have um, in the Midwest and states like Wisconsin and Minnesota. And so we're planning to tackle some of these complicated dynamics over the course of the podcast season because they're incredibly important. Who do we mean when we say Asian America? Mm -hmm. But today we wanted to look at Asian American people of faith who've been involved in racial justice movements historically. You know, I recently attended a UCLA webinar that talked about this. Um, I saw Marion Kwan, who was part of the Delta Ministry, founded by the National Council of Churches in Mississippi in the 1960s. And today we want to focus on Yuri Kochiyama, who was born in 1921 in San Pedro, California. And Yuri Kochiyama, some of you might have heard this name before. She was a second generation Japanese American, so a Nisei. And just for a little demographic context, until 1980, Japanese Americans were far and away the largest Asian American group in America. And I think people forget this. Mm -hmm. Even I think I forget this sometimes. This changes in 1980 when Chinese Americans become the largest group because of post-1965 Asian immigration. Filipino Americans become the second largest by 1990. South Asians are also a growing population by the 80s and 90s. But when we're talking about pre-1965 Asian America, numerically, Japanese America really is the largest community. And so Yuri Kochiyama was part of a very large um, and thriving Japanese American community. And interestingly, she's born in California, grows up on the West Coast, but spends a lot of her formative years also on the East Coast. And so we'll, we could talk about that as well. But we invited um, Grace Gao today, and we're so happy that she's able to join us. And we invited Professor Gao because she wrote a chapter on Yuri Kochiyama for an edited collection titled, Can I Get a Witness? 13 Peacemakers, Community Builders, and Agitators for Faith and Justice, published by Erdman's in 2019. And as the title of the book suggests, she was interested in this relationship between Kochiyama's Christian faith and her lifetime of activism. And so thank you for being here, uh, Professor Gao. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. So this was an excellent chapter. I learned so much from reading it. And what I really appreciated in particular was that you looked at the long expanse of Yuri Kochiyama's life. So you didn't just focus on her activism in the 1960s. Very famously, Yuri Kochiyama, right? She is the woman, the Asian American woman who's holding Malcolm X's head right. when he was assassinated, right, in 1965. And I think that's how most if academics I know know about her, and many of them do, that is kind of the image that sticks in their minds. But there's so much more to her life. And so I think you really uh, were able to paint a picture of her longer life. And so maybe to begin, um, could you just tell us about Yuri Kochiyama? Who was she? Why do you think Asian American Christians should know about her? Okay, so... Why should Asian Americans know about her, Asian American Christians? Well, I argue that she maintained her Christian faith throughout. So I think that's one key piece, although I'm sure we're going to unpack that a bit. And she's one of the best known Asian American activists. So she was a mentor during the rise of the Asian American movement. She was involved in the redress movement for Japanese Americans. She had not just a personal relationship with Malcolm X, you know, you referenced the photo, 
But she has, she had a personal relationship with Mumia Abu Jamal, who's like America's best known political prisoner. So she has what we would call street cred, right? In African-American, Puerto Rican, indigenous communities. And so the way you opened this podcast, asking about the place of Asians, Asian-Americans in current progressive movements, I think we can look at her life and see, well, how did she do that? How did she develop this kind of street cred? And how did she go from someone who, by her own memoir, said, I was this all-American, red, white, and blue. Um, She grew up in a custom-designed, kind of like a middle-class upbringing. And then post-war, because of everything that happened, Her life is one of downward social mobility, right? But then she becomes radicalized. So I think that also is an interesting link. The final thing I'll say just to this opening question is that she credits Malcolm X as radicalizing her, as shifting her from a civil rights paradigm to a revolutionary one. But that only happens when she's in her 40s. She's married, she has kids, and as a 40-year-old middle-aged lady, she becomes radicalized. And so as I was doing research for this book, I had like a deep affinity. I was kind of thinking through, oh my God, could I have done that? Could I have dragged my young kids to the marches? Not have assigned babysitters, but just drag them to the various protests? Could I have put them in the middle of the streets during, you know, Harlem Parents Committee protests? The protesters were putting their young kids in the middle of the streets to demonstrate how unsafe the streets were and how they needed cross lights. So, again, we can I'm happy to unpack what I've what I've just said. But I I had so I think she's an important historical figure. And for me personally, she's been very challenging of a model Because in reviewing her life, I'm not sure I could have done all the things that she did. No, I definitely hear what you're saying, Professor Gao, because I think uh, Yuri Kochiyama has five children. (laughs) Yeah, five or six. One of them did die in a tragic accident. Yeah, I'm sorry I don't have all the facts top of mind. Yeah, but five or six. Oh, no, all the more reason folks should um, look at the chapter that you wrote, which is in an excellent, I mean, (laughs) this is a wonderful collection. What you also mentioned, it reminds me of just how controversial and unpopular many of the movements and the causes that she was involved with were during the time that she was involved. And I think that's something that, I mean, this is like what historians like to say. It's nowadays we think of civil rights, for example, as like a very, you know, noble kind of quest movement. But it's important to remember how unpopular figures like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were during the time. Right. Not to mention how unpopular Black power movements and Malcolm X were. These were extremely unpopular, very low kind of public positivity ratings. And you're right. It was, it wasn't a popular thing to do mm-hmm. at the time that she was involved. And you're right. There was some personal cost involved. And I think, I think that is a great I, I think, reminder to us, right, that these things meaningful activism and involvement doesn't come without a cost. There were tremendous personal costs. So I'll just give you some examples. So feminists like to talk about how the personal is political. 
she mobilized her Christmas card list. Her Christmas cards were the way she got out the messages about various, you know, this movement or that movement or that movement. And there are some friends who were like, yeah, Yuri, I think we're done. <laughs> I mean, there are some friends who just, you know, and as I say in the chapter, her government subsidized apartments in New York, where she housed her kids and her husband became quote unquote, Grand Central Station. She had this ethic of radical hospitality, where if you were an artist, or you were a student, or you were kind of moving through as a speaker, and you didn't have a place to stay, you stayed at Yuri's two, three bedroom apartment. In terms of personal costs, that meant the kids would come home and they didn't know if they could sleep in their own bed. A lot of times, mom, Yuri would just be like, okay, no, you're going to the neighbor's house. Sometimes the kids would double up or sometimes their space was given up. They would put in one memorable case, they put a mattress on top of the, the bathtub to put just another person. So uh, their dining room table was not about food. It was about pamphlets and cards. <laughs> and it was like, you know, the workstation. So, um, and, and, and if you look deeply, so the, most of the material, most of my source material is from Diane Fujino. She's written this, you know, marvelous biography. And there's some other stuff that they talk about how some of the kids resented uh, what mom was doing in some cases. And she, Yuri talks about a difference between the older kids and the younger kids, because the older kids had some normal childhood before mom was radicalized, but the younger kids did not. And if you look at her life, the younger kids, when they became of age, they got the hell out of Dodge. They moved from New York to California because they wanted some privacy, right? So absolutely some tremendous costs, personally. Well, thank you, Professor Gao. That that is true. I, I think anything, anytime one person wants to make a difference, there's going to be a cost associated. And I'm thinking in terms of her experience in Japanese American incarceration during World War II. How much was that a driver for her future activism? And did that somehow connect her to the Asian American movement? So that is really interesting. So, okay, first of all, I argue, and I this is not a novel thing to say, but she really developed activism skills in during the time of mass incarceration because she, as a Sunday school teacher to this junior high group called Crusaders, they mobilized a letter writing campaign to lift the morale of their brothers and uncles and fathers or whatever who were in the war. And so this is a massive effort. So she had to, she had to organize, she had to get the addresses, she had to get the stamps, she contributed her $8 a month salary to that. So I think that's point number one, but I think you're saying, is it connected to the reparations? It is, but what's, what's really interesting is that post-war, it took her some time to be conscientized. So even though Japanese Americans were forced, I mean, so she saw all of the trauma, but she hadn't yet connected it to systemic racism. And it took her post-war experiences of being denied work, or maybe she would waitress for a little bit and customers would complain and then they would fire her, or she would be involved in some like veteran groups and she was in the South for a bit. 
And she noticed, wait a minute, how come the African-American soldiers weren't coming through? Why were they only white people? And then she had to be told, well, there's like geography here, right? Everyone knows that if you're black, you go on this side of the town and if you're white. So that took a bit, right, for her to learn. And then so she went from the civil rights model to the revolutionary thing that I mentioned. And this is another point. Diane Fugino makes an argument that even though Yuri was absolutely passionate about reparations for Japanese Americans, she secretly thought they were more urgent for African Americans. And but she was politically savvy. So it's not the case that she was going into meetings with Japanese Americans saying, no, you know, blacks first, right? But but she somehow she was able to keep both points in mind. So of course the incarceration experience is the groundwork, right? It allows her to then have firsthand experience of the injustice and the inhumanity of incarceration, which then plays a role in her deep care and concern for political prisoners. But it's it's a bit of a longer road from her incarceration in the 40s to her redress activism in the late 60s, actually more, more like 70s. Wow, that's a very interesting aspect of her story. Maybe that's why so many Asian Americans are not as aware of her <laughs> because she seems like she hasn't been a strong a figure that has been very involved with the traditional Asian American movement, which is more campus based, right? So, well, okay, so what ends up happening is the Asian American movement chronologically happens later. Mm-hmm. And you, you guys know this, you, mm-hmm. you are the historians <laughs> among us, right? And so she, she writes in her memoirs that she had been active in so many other campaigns, mm-hmm. it made right. sense for her to join the Asian American movement. And as you know, there was like the East Coast activism and there was also the West Coast activism. And she actually did teach a class as an adjunct in Asian American studies for a bit. But at this point, she was kind of like an elder Uh, as opposed to a young 18, 19, 20 student, right? At San Francisco State or something like that. But yeah, so her... She did believe that all of these movements were connected. So not just in the U.S., but across the world, right? She literally called it the movement, Mm -hmm. definite article. Mm -hmm. For her, everything was connected. But as Jane mentioned, sorry, are we going, are we doing Jane or are we doing Professor Hong? I'm okay with Jane, but given that whole article kerfuffle in the Wall Street Journal, we're recording this in December, so some of you... Might not be as familiar, but there was a op-ed in the Wall Street Journal where um, this random dude argued that Jill Biden should not be called doctor um, because he had not earned that title. That's right. Okay, let's let's model respect (laughs) uh, to titles earned. (laughs) Okay, okay, very good. So as uh, Professor Hong noted... She's been involved in controversial movements. You know, she she's an admirer of Maoism. She made some controversial statements about the terrorist attacks of 9-11. Mm-hmm. It's not just from the standpoint of history that we say, oh, they were controversial then, but now we're good. Mm-hmm. I think there are plenty of Asian American Christians who are like, Maoism? Mm, I don't know. Communism? Oh, that's a little scary. <laughs> and I want nothing to do with Osama bin Laden. Well, that's a great segue into the next question I want to ask. Okay. Unless, Jane, the, uh, sorry, Professor Hong, would you like to? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll we'll figure this out. Um, yeah, exactly. But, but, but Dr. Gao. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dr. Singh and I will we'll follow. We'll figure this um, out. <laughs> Many yes, doctors in the room, right. yeah. all PhDs. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that I wanted to add early to the conversation about the Asian American movement is something that I read about in the um, the Densho Encyclopedia entry on her that I hadn't known about was what you mentioned before, Dr. Gao. Mm-hmm. She does teach ethnic studies classes as an adjunct, and she's actually involved with ethnic studies protests on the East Coast at the City University of New York, mm-hmm. which I had heard about. So it's kind of like the East yes. Coast mm-hmm. wing of the Asian American movement, which of course, right, is centered very much around San Francisco State, UC right. Berkeley, the Bay Area. But then there's a whole New York City dimension to it. And she's also involved in anti-war protests out there in the late yes. 60s, early 70s. So I thought it kind of also reminds us, like I'm from the East Coast. So I think a lot about mm-hmm. coastal differences. And I'm also a product of universities in the Northeast, you know, where people are still fighting for ethnic studies. So I think a lot about these questions yes. of just California versus everyone else. So it's really interesting to see her as this East Coast figure who in some ways yes. bridges, right? Bridges yes. some of those movements, as you were suggesting earlier. Yeah. I, I was in New York at Union Seminary in the late 80s and early 90s. And I had heard about these Asian American movements and I didn't make the connection at that point because I think so, the activists at Union Seminary knew about Yuri and mentioned her, but we never deep dived and engaged any of that as a theological scholars mm-hmm. or, or educators. And so I think this leads to the question I want to ask about her faith. And in fact, I think it's a broader question than just her own faith development, because today many conservative Christians are pushing back on critical race theory. They're actually very much um, opposed to uh, some of the what they consider the more militant aspects of Black Lives Matters. And I think that that is a big issue for many Christians to address. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that in your article, in your chapter, that there's a common perception that she moved away from her Christian faith the more she grew in her political consciousness and movement activities. And you argue that that's inaccurate. So could you elaborate a little bit more about how her Christian faith shaped her activism in, in, in her life in general? So she describes herself as very religious when young. And she talks about how various psalms were moving to her and she loved gospel stories. So that's by her own account. Mm -hmm. And she was also someone who wrote a lot of creeds. So even at the age of 18, she had this creedal understanding that she would love everyone and she would not betray her friends and kind of like a... I don't want to poo-poo, but it's it's a bit kumbaya type of thing. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that she ends this creed by saying, Dear Heavenly Father, help me live it. And insofar as that creedal belief at age 18 was her Christianity, I say she never lost it. Because then the rest of her life shows how she is trying to befriend people of all races, of all kinds. She's trying to be loyal, stand in solidarity with folk. As I mentioned before, she taught Sunday school. She was very, very eager to do so. And when she took a class for three weeks by the LA Presbytery on how to teach kids Sunday school, and there's something that she learned there that she returned to again and again. You see this in multiple places in her memoirs. 
And that is this saying something like, it's more important what you teach a child to love than what you teach a child to know. The type of creedal Christianity that someone might be looking for in Yuri, I think you'd have to be a little bit more agnostic about where she lands at the end of her life, right? But insofar as she's thinking love is more important than knowledge, so action is more important than doctrine. Mm -hmm. Again, I think you see this with her ministry of presence and her accompaniment and her ethic of radical hospitality. But let me just add a few wrinkles. Number one, In 1971, she becomes a secret convert to Sunni Islam. She dons the hijab. She goes to prison twice a week, rides the bus, is visiting an imam there that she met through Malcolm X's Organization for African Unity. So why was it secret? Well, she thought her family would be upset. And we don't exactly know. Well, it was a period of time where she was doing the visitation and then it ends. But then what happens to her beliefs afterward? We don't really know. That's point one. Point number two is even throughout her older years, post-1963 activism, she never loses her connection to the institutional church. She continues to teach Sunday school from time to time. She continues to volunteer at random soup kitchens or English as a second language classes in various New York churches. And after a period of time when her husband, he he was kind of retired and she had to go back to work full time. She took two jobs in two churches, the Presbyterian one and then a Methodist one. So there's something about the structure of the church on some level That was meaningful to her, right? Whatever the content of her confessional belief. Yeah. So I I don't know if that fully answers the question, but, uh, you know, I've been on Facebook (laughs) a few times where people have been like, no, she lost her faith. And, you know, she abandoned Christianity for Islam. And, you know, this can be a highly fraught Mm. question, right? Especially if you're looking for Asian American Christian role models. Right. But it's possible she opens up an ecumenical way of being or, you know, in my line of work, someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer was talking about a religionless Christianity. I mean, maybe she's approximating something like that. Yeah, and I'm also familiar that many mainline Protestants are ecumenically minded Protestants are very comfortable with working um, with different religious groups and interfaith. Sure. But I think the one question that probably would be asked not just to Yuri, but to a number of progressive Christians as well. Uh, and this is a question from a more conservative side, is, is what is the difference between a non-religious or secular progressive activist and one who is a Christian, given that her story is, a, is a, probably a good example of, of not knowing how to differentiate. You did mention that she was very committed to continuing her engagement with the institutional church, but I'm wondering as you look at her life and maybe even the progressive Christians, how would you respond to that question? I mean, I don't mean to be flipping this answer, but one way is to say, we don't know, which is to say, I think it's Matthew. You know, it's funny. I'm a PhD ethicist or whatever. And I'm always like, oh yeah, where was that in the Bible? But the separation of the sheep and the goats Mm -hmm. is done by, you know, on one flat reading, right. Of the passage 
determination is what you do, right? Are you visiting people in prison? Are you feeding the hungry? Are you tending to the sick? That's the sheep, right? Now, of course, there are other Bible passages we can talk about, about how you make the determination. That would be one response. Now, those are some really big questions, right? Because I think that does get to the heart of a lot of I mean, even the debate over critical race theory and like the debate over what are Christian roles in the conversation about racial justice. I mean, there's, I'm on Twitter now and like every day there's some statement by some church leader mm-hmm. in today's society. It's usually a white evangelical male. So, right, there is a whole conversation within evangelical circles that, you know, has like some connections to mainline conversations, but Tim knows this. Tim is the expert, right? Mainline versus evangelical, right? There's a long history here. Mm-hmm. Yuri Kochiyama, right, very much does fit into the more mainline history that, you know, I think we'll talk about this more over the course of the podcast season. But mm-hmm. these are really big questions. And you're right, Dr. Gao. I think it's more than we can tackle in like a, <laughs> some, you know, this many minute podcast episode. It's something, something to think about. Sure, yeah. sure. Let me just say two things. So about the critical race theory point and the broader question of what is education. So Yuri's life shows that it wasn't schooling who taught her these things. It's where she lived, right? I mean, it was her Black and Puerto Rican neighbors, right, who told her about discrimination in hiring. And that's how she got involved in her early activism It's also, she was part of the the freedom school movement, right? Where the curriculum wasn't teaching the type of things that folks want people to learn under, you know, critical race theory lens. So even that shows a really interesting pathway, meaning if formal schooling is not doing the job, right? Can you find yourself under the tutelage of others, right? Can you form para-associations to do the work? Now, that's not to say that I'm going to absent myself from these larger questions of what does it mean to form someone, right, in college or grad school. Well, Dr. Gao, I have one last question to ask, and maybe Jane will have a few others. Based on all that you've uh, studied in your own uh, research and discipline and also as you looked at the life of Yuri, what do you think would be helpful or edifying for Asian American Christians or Christians in general to know about the role of um, churches or individuals like Yuri today? What would really really be helpful for, for Christians? Well, one is a point that I began with, which is it's not too late, right? <laughs> that if, you, if she begins her lifelong activism in her 40s, right, when she's already married with children. It's not the case that if you weren't in that freshman seminar in college, right, and you weren't radicalized then, then, you know, you're stuck being, I don't know, whatever job that you have. I think that's one thing. I think another thing is I'm really struck, again, back to my, I'm I'm on too many Facebook groups, but, you know, one common question people have is, I want to move to this nice neighborhood because the schools are better. And how do I feel about that? There are larger justice issues and, or should I go to private school or whatever? I began by talking about Yuri street cred and she had it because she lived in the very places where the work needed to be done. Right. If you've got this New York based activism. So Dr. Hong, you're going to have to help me out, but like, If she's like doing this from the Hamptons, right? 
trying to be like, that's, that's just not going to work. Right. So I think there, it's a really provocative thing to think through. Like how committed do you want to be to either the Black Lives Matter movement or various indigenous movements for independence or, you know, whatever, are you willing to, to take her path? Now, her downward social mobility was not really by choice. I'm surrounded by Christians who have made, you know, so someone like Russell John would be a fantastic example, right? People who have made the choice to not do middle class, blah, 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 but for the sake of solidarity with the poor or whatever. So sorry, I'm not like completing the sentence, but what I'm saying is I think that is a really challenging model for Asian American Christians to think through. Oh, Dr. Gao, you're really sticking it to the heart of, (laughs) (laughs) as a newish mom, like, oh goodness, now I have to enter, wade into these debates about like school and all the stuff that I thought I had like evaded for so long. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It, apparently it does not end. Yeah, no, this is what I heard <laughs> from my sister and others. Not. But you're really raising, I think, and these are like real questions about like who is our neighbor? You know, who is our neighbor? But not just yes. figuratively, but literally. Right. Right? So who is our neighbor? Literally, who is your neighbor? Yes. Uh-huh. And how kind of we can maintain empathy, right? Or can like maintain a position of compassion. Yeah, and not to necessarily to kind of otherize folks in need as other yes <laughs> but in fact that's as, right. as part of us as a community um, at large that's right oh goodness this has been an amazing conversation and just so many questions provocative questions that I hope we can all and I believe we will all continue to wrestle with um, in our own ways in our own walks I just wanted to say I mean Yuri Kochiyama she dies in 2014 in her 90s so like literally that is within all of our lifetimes mm-hmm. I think what I've been struck by as well is this is very much a living history. Yes. You know, and I think I mentioned Marianne Kwan, who was involved in the Delta ministry. She's still alive, still active, retired, but still active in the Bay Area. And so I think for all of us to think about kind of this history as not completely disconnected from ourselves. And I think that's something that, mm-hmm. you know, as, as historians, I think Tim and I think a lot about this. It's like, what are the ways in which this history is very much still alive, right? And how has it shaped and how does it continue to shape the world that we live in? And I think as Asian American Christians who care about racial justice, but who care about Black lives, right? What are the ways, mm-hmm. how can we engage in ways that are meaningful, but that ultimately might actually cost us something, right? But ways that are meaningful and not self-sacrificial for the sake of being, right, a martyr, but self-sacrificial in the sense, um, in a way that is Christ-pleasing and biblical and loving and all of all of the things. So thank you so much, Professor Gao, for joining us today and for just challenging us uh, with more about Yuri Kochiyama's life. This has been very challenging <laughs> for me, but also very encouraging. Because you're right, if someone, if Yuri <laughs> Kochiyama can, you know, kind of step it up in her 40s and after with six kids, I did go back and check if she can do it in a two, three bedroom apartment. (laughs) That doesn't give us a lot of uh, (laughs) excuses uh, not to do something or not to do what we can. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wrapping it up, Tim, anything that you want to add before we end for today? Just a thank you, uh, Dr. Gao, because it's for so many young Asian American Christians who are looking for examples to emulate. uh, I think you and Yuri are a good examples for us to to consider. Oh, what a nice thought. Thank y'all. It's been fun. 
Thanks for joining us for another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. You can listen to Centering episodes at soundcloud.com backslash Centering Podcast or your favorite podcast app. Go in peace and remember that God loves and embraces all of who you are.